Hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and we are back at the Midnight Mass, celebrating our favorite cult movies. Uh, all you children of the popcorn out there are probably chomping at the bit to know what movie we have in store for you this week, although you probably know because it was written in the title. Uh, but, but I'll introduce my co-host anyway, who can... Uh, illuminate us on what we'll be discussing. Without further ado, it's my fantastic co-host, filmmaker, and friend, Michael Verratti. Hey, Peaches. I am so excited to be here this week to talk about this movie. And what is that movie, you ask? Well, we sold our souls for rock and roll and traveled to the Great White North to explore the world of Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, and not only Phantom of the Paradise, but the massive cult that exists in the city of Winnipeg built around its magical, uh, wild, uh, you know, prestigious celluloid runtime. So I'm excited to dig into this. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really exciting for you and I is that we set out to create the Midnight Mass podcast to, you know, not just be a podcast about movies, but more than that, to be a podcast about cult movies and even more specifically about the cults that you know make a cult movie a cult movie and with phantom of the paradise um there there's this really unique situation we've got going on where you know the movie uh really wasn't a cult film uh anywhere in the world except for one place winnipeg canada you know and and because of winnipeg the film has been kept alive by a group of diehards and uh over time you know, outliers around the world, those random, you know, unique, desperate, lonely Phantom of the Paradise uh, obsessed fans were eventually able to meet their Canadian tribe. And that, in, in many ways, is almost as fascinating as this fabulous Forgotten De Palma film itself. Yes. And as I, I said to all of our interview subjects, I think in one way, uh, shape or form, and you'll meet them all in a bit, uh, that... When we set out to do this episode, we, I think, thought we were just going to spend most of the time talking about the movie itself, as we've done in previous episodes and we will do in future episodes. But then we discovered this fascinating kind of slice of sociology that has never happened before and never happened again in a singular place centered around one film. And it, it it encapsulates so much of what Midnight Mass as a podcast and, and a discussion series is all about because this is a, a singular moment and place that's all about this movie that one town over, they're not even thinking about it. It's, it's amazing. It really is. And... You know, I actually was a fan of this film before um, knowing about the Winnipeg cult. And as uh, the listeners will hear, um, Michael and I both were fans, uh, bona fide fans of the film. Um, but but I have to say, I think our obsession didn't run quite as deep as, as uh, some of the people we'll interview and, and some of the people up in Winnipeg. We um, have a much better understanding of the cult now. And, you know... It is a fascinating phenomenon. The movie itself, Phantom of the Paradise, for those of you who haven't seen it, you need to check it out. We we highly recommend seeing the movies we're discussing um, while listening to our podcast because, you know, it just will enrich your experience. And if you haven't seen it in a while, maybe revisit it. But, you know, this is the 1974 Brian De Palma film 
uh, about, well, basically, it's a rock and roll takeoff on The Phantom of the Opera. Um, and it is uh, a musical, a rock musical at that. And it's, I would say it is transgressive. It is sort of uh, dark and twisted. And, you know, Jessica Harper is the the femme fatale who, you know, you may remember from Suspiria uh, and Shock Treatment. She's kind of a cult film icon. She's literally been, she's a bona fide cult film icon, been in three cult movies. Absolutely. Paul Williams, of course, did the music for it. And, uh, you know, and, and yet the movie tanked. <laughs> like so many cult movies do, it tanked at the box office. Well, except in Winnipeg, which we're going to explore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it is, it's so interesting because this movie, as as Peaches points out, it is transgressive. It's sort of like a psychotropic rock and roll Phantom of the Opera meets Faust. There's this whole like deal with the devil kind of story in it. And it's got a little bit of, every counterculture of the era, but never quite striking on them. We get queer representation in this movie, but maybe not the way that Rocky Horror gives us, or or even the way that necessarily we want, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Uh, We get to see kind of the dirty underbelly of rock and roll. Uh, And this movie also just kind of takes the piss out of consumer culture surrounding music and uh, the the release of big bands from major labels in an era that was really dictated by rock and roll music to sort of poke holes in that industry is truly something, I think. Absolutely. And, and you have Paul Williams, who was a huge celebrity uh, at the time that the film came out. Um, I think Malcolm really, you know, one of our guests really, really describes how um, Paul Williams was everywhere on, on children's TV shows, on the radio, you know, writing songs for Barbara Streisand, um, doing songs for movies. He was on, you know, game shows like Hollywood Squares and, you know, completely pervasive. And he poured his heart and soul into the music in this film. And you really can tell the music is so good. And then he is also in the movie. He plays one of the the, the main characters. You know, he's the antagonist, Swan, yes. uh, and does a fantastic job. Um, so yeah, the movie had all these great things going for it. And it most markets, it only lasted at the box office a week or less. And somehow in Winnipeg, Canada, the film... Uh, it played for months and months and months, and kids there saw the movie repeatedly. And one of our guests today is documentarian Malcolm Ingram, uh, who we're going to introduce in a moment. And he made a movie called Phantom of Winnipeg, which is a documentary film all about the cult in Winnipeg who who love Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, another guest we have is the editor of Fangoria magazine, Phil Nobile Jr., who is a Phantom of the Paradise uh, obsessed fan, which I love because it's, you know, you, you expect the editor of Fangoria to maybe be obsessed with, I don't know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And but, he is. Phil, no, no, no. He's only obsessed with Phantom. No, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to rewrite um, <laughs> Phil's story, but it, it's just interesting that he's, he is obsessed with Phantom. Um, and then I think perhaps we have one of the, if not the most obsessed fans uh, coming up, who is Ari Khan, uh, who we will introduce you to, who is, uh, well, Michael, you, you, you described him as, as the mayor 
the mayor of the um, cult of Phantom of the Paradise. Well, and yes. I, I think he earns that title because Ari Khan, as he will tell you himself, has been preserving and collecting phantom memorabilia since the movie came out in the 70s and was doing so before the internet and uh, before social media allowed him to connect with fans in an easy way. And he'll tell, tell you a story about uh, sort of the network of convention uh scouring that they did using pay phones. It's a fascinating story and Ari, when the internet was launched uh, created uh, the Swan Archives and is is sort of the exhaustive researcher and archivist of this movie and we need people like him for all of our cult films to keep the torch burning I think. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is the Midnight Mass dedicated episode to the Phantom of the Paradise, but more importantly, the cult of the Phantom of the Paradise. And to kick things off, we're going to uh, first speak with director Malcolm Ingram, uh, who uh, I will bring on right now. Okay, everybody, I am really excited to introduce our next guest, uh, not only because he's made a film all about the cult of the Phantom of the Paradise uh, and a unique cult um, at that, uh, but also because I know this guy. We're actually uh, old pals. I met him years ago when my film All About Evil was playing at the Provincetown Film Festival while his documentary Bear Nation was playing at the same time. Um, I had actually already seen another documentary film of his called Small Town Gay Bar, uh, which I adored. So it was a thrill to meet him all those years ago and befriend him and then watch as year after year after year, he put out um, more and more documentaries with really fascinating subjects, including the continental baths in New York City, darling. Uh, so yes, very, very sexy documentaries, but uh, also um, a documentary about sports even that I liked. I mean, I, I don't, like sports and i liked this film uh out to win uh and more he's done a lot more including his most recent film clerk about his friend kevin smith uh the the cult filmmaker um but that's not what we're here to talk about we are here to talk about his film the phantom of winnipeg without further ado let's welcome to the podcast malcolm ingram hello malcolm <laughs> Hey, my God, I, I did make a movie with sports. <laughs> I made a movie, I made a documentary of sports, and I too hate sports. I made that for my father, my disapproving Catholic father who, uh, who never approved me, but I made a movie with sports because he loves sports. And to be fair, what's so great about your f film is, that film in particular, is that it's, you know, about queer people in professional athletics. And I think for a lot of us, you know, we didn't think that sports were for us, you know. Um, and now, like, looking at films such as your your own and, and watching athletes come out of the closet, I have to say I'm, I'm more interested in sports than I, than I had been when it seemed like it was, you know, kind of a, an exclusively straight type of thing. Still feels pretty straight. 
I mean, I'm glad I made the movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, it was it was an incredible experience to kind of, uh, I mean, meeting Billie Jean King and 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 getting getting people to talk firsthand about it. I mean, sports is such a fascinating thing, but it's totally not my bag. Yeah, I hear you. Well, you know, I think something we have in common is you and I both love movies. Um, And I am wondering, what came first? Your interest in the cult of Phantom of the Paradise, specifically uh, the the group of people um, in Winnipeg who love this movie and seem to be an anomaly? Or was it an actual interest in the film Phantom of the Paradise? Were you a fan of Phantom of the Paradise? I actually, well, I saw Phantom of the Paradise the way, one of the ways I think you should. I mean, one of them would be to see it in Winnipeg. Uh, but I saw it on like uh, something called a City City Late Great Movies in Toronto. City TV was this old school network that would pay, play like uh, cult movies and softcore porn movies after 11 o'clock on a Friday night. And that's how I saw Phantom of the Paradise in the 70s. And it really, really, really freaked me out. Um, like the whole, there, there's a sequence in the movie where this guy's face gets pressed in a, in a record presser. And that really left a impression on a young Malcolm. So Malcolm, I have to ask, you know, you are from Canada, but you're not from Winnipeg. So when did you discover that Winnipeg had embraced this film? And, and what's kind of the general sense elsewhere in Canada that this movie has been sort of claimed uh, by this one city, the great like Winnipeg is kind of look. I don't, I don't want to bust them. I love Winnipeg, but Winnipeg is not a very respected city in Canada. Um, you know, I mean, like Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver get all the get all the attention. A city like Vancouver is it's right kind of in the smack dab in the middle of right in the middle. Some would argue the middle of nowhere, but you know, I mean, they have a really they have a really great kind of sense of things. They kind of, their town, like it's the guess who came from Winnipeg. And uh, I don't know, Winnipeg, there's just something about it. It's really cold. It's one of the coldest places. It's, I think it's the coldest metropolitan city in Canada. So it's kind of, they have really long winters. Um, and the really, everybody makes fun of them because it's so cold there. So Winnipeg gets a kind of a, a bad rap. Um, so when I heard, I, I literally, uh, it, I, it was doing one of those deep dives that you do late at night when you're like, you know, I, I want to know more about Phantom of the Paradise. Like, I know the basics, but I want to know more about this whole phenomenon that the city of Winnipeg had embraced the movie. I found it very charming. Yeah, I mean, it is really actually extraordinary when you consider, you know, especially uh, the way your film lays it out, that this film, everywhere else, pretty much across the board, tanked and did not, you know, stick around in movie theaters. It was, you know, uh, had very, very short runs because, you know, the box office indicates how long a movie's going to stay on screen, especially in 1975. But in Winnipeg, somehow, you know, this total anomaly occurred where people loved it. And this is before social media. And, you know, how do you think that happened? I mean, you made the movie about it. Like, do you have any theories on exactly why, 
it happened there? Um, there's a lot of theory. I mean, one, it had a great trailer, and it happened to be playing in it. We have a provincial rating system. Like, it's like, it's not just, uh, you guys have like restricted PG and all that stuff. We have a provincial rating system, and I think that Phantom of, uh, Phantom of the Paradise got a relatively, um, low rating in, 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 in Manitoba, which is where Winnipeg is. So essentially, kids, 13 years old were, were able to go see it. Um, so I think, and it was a, it was a real schoolyard movie. It became kind of a point of pride, um, to have seen. I remember when I was a kid, the movie that everybody wanted to see was Porky's. And, uh, you were shit hot if you managed to see Porky's when you were a kid. And I think that this is just a case of that, but the Phantom of the Paradise captured these kids' imaginations. And it's something we talk about in the schoolyard. It was really driven by kids. Kids were the ones who would go see it. Like they would literally go at twelve o'clock and start wa- and and go to every screening until like eight o'clock. But it is so unique to this particular city. And what I I, I love about your documentary is, and and we discussed this before we went on the air. In many ways, this documentary encapsulates what our entire podcast is all about: this embracing of a film. And uh, celebrating it and taking that celebration to the next level, to to worship. So when you start researching this phenomenon, at what point did this go from passive interest, like this is a curiosity that happened in Winnipeg and that amuses me, to, you know, I think I want to make a documentary about this. I mean, I got, like, my interest in film started through cult film. I mean, like, I, 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 I sure can appreciate uh, the concept of a cult film, and I appreciate people who make an effort to kind of for the thing they love. Like when I was young, I lo- like I loved John Waters. I saw I saw John Waters movies at obscenely young age. Like I saw Polyester. I rode my bike to see Polyester at the theaters when it first came out at the Playhouse Theater in Oakville. Um, and I was completely blown away and 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 freaked out and charmed by Divine. And I thought. I love Divine so fucking much. Um, even then, and essentially, like, ever since then, I've had an appreciation for cult, cultish film. And, and the fact that, like, you know, to these people, Phantom of the Paradise, Phantom of the Paradise was their Divine. Like, it was this thing that really represented something to them. I think there's a lot of misfit to it. Um, you know, I mean, like, you know, there's an underdog story. Uh, there's a lot of nerds in it. Like Paul Williams is fucking an amazing human being, but he's kind of nerdy. Um, so essentially, I think that a lot of people just identified with. Uh, I, I think a lot of people really identified with the story, and I think that it captured the imagination. I love the passion of the people. Like they're just so passionate about it, and it just reminds me of the thing. Like you know, I'm not. I mean, I I like. I mean, I love Brian De Palma. I like Phantom of the Paradise, but I love the people of Winnipeg's passion for the film. What I am interested in is you had said, you know, people found a lot of themselves in this movie. You know, that you can if you're a nerdy kid, you can see yourself in this. I guess there's there's definitely a queer element to this film. And uh, if you're a queer kid, you could probably find yourself. But what was really interesting about your documentary is how when you look sort of at a swath of this fan base, they're they're really only unified by this movie. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a one singular core demographic 
for Phantom of the Paradise in the way that, say, Rocky Horror has. And uh, I'm, I'm just sort of interested in this one kind of unique movie that appealed to all of these people. I mean, the thing that unites them is they're all peggers. They're all Winnipeg. You know what I mean? It's just like they're this type of Canadian. They're uh, they're a strong, hardy breed of Canadian. And they literally, and they get shot upon. They're the butt of every joke. Um, like in Canada. So essentially, they, they have tough skin. Um, I, I have much admiration for, 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 the, for, for the peggers. Uh, it's it's so Paul Williams as well. Like Paul Williams was so completely charmed by by uh, by Winnipeg. It's a really special place. I mean, it's it's uh, I don't know. I, I I try to think of an American comparison. I don't like Boise, Idaho, but like Boise's like kind of cool. Like no, there's nothing about Winnipeg, right? There's nothing about Winnipeg that's fundamentally cool, I guess, except that the guess who maybe um, maybe Milwaukee, Milwaukee. Come on, the fucking like you you got Laverne and Shirley and and happy like beer, <laughs> like cheese. Right, okay, uh, like beer no. and cheese. Okay, you're right. Well, I I have to say that it is um completely charming and relatable to watch the people in your film talk about the Phantom of the Paradise, because as cult movie lovers, um, like you said, you know, for you and for me, John Waters and Divine uh, were that thing that sparked our uh, curiosity or interest. And actually, uh, when we spoke to Ari, you know, I brought up the dream warriors you know because that was the schoolyard movie that i got to see you know sneaking into the theater when i was 12 or 13 years old and then got got to go and tell everyone at school that you know freddy krueger slit someone's you know veins out of their arms and used them as a marionette puppet and it was the most amazing thing i'd ever seen and you know i think in many ways that 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 dream warriors was made for adults but really it was you know, young people who just, you know, had to obsess over it. And it's almost as if, I think maybe what you're saying is Phantom of the Paradise, in a way, may, if, if it had been uh, marketed or at least um, allowed to be seen by younger people, we might have seen more of these schoolyard type phenomenons for the film, but in other markets, it was presented, you know, as an adult film. And I think in most of the United States, it was probably, you know, marketed toward adults and given an adult rating. So that's really interesting to think of the fact that you're, you're right. These were all, they say in the movie, they were like nine, 10, 11 years old when they saw it and became obsessed with it. And that is really uh, that, that kind of, Obsession, you know, you carry it with you forever. To this day, I love Dream Warriors because of the impression it made on me at that age. That's one of my favorites. Have you found your tribe? Is there a tribe like of Dream Warriors people? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but the thing about that is I thought the tribe was, you know, I thought the tribe was... uh this unique thing. And then the older I get, you know, and, and the more successful that Freddie became, I sort of resented it in a way, because unlike Phantom of the Paradise, 
A Nightmare on Elm Street after Dream Warriors exploded and Freddy was everywhere. And this thing that I thought was kind of mine was now everybody's. And I actually kind of resented it and actually, you know, sort of resented the later movies. Whereas something like Phantom of the Paradise, like it was preserved, like it was sort of this secret thing for this small group of people, which I think is really kind of wonderful. I mean, the funny thing about it, it's so funny because you had Dream Warriors, um, Streets of Fire is another one of my movies. It's like, that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing. There's just certain movies. Like, the Phantom fans are very generous. They love, they want They want to take on people. They're like, come on, join our club. Like, they really want to. Like, my, like, I'm very greedy with my, my with my loves, my passions. Like, um, and I guess that's a really wonderful thing about the, you know, the Phantom people is how they continue to sh- like they still have these get togethers. Like that movie still shows. Like before the pandemic, that movie still showed. Like I would say at least six to eight times a year and sold out like completely. Like and everybody would just gather. But the funny thing is, is that none of them really know each other. Like the it's not like they all go in a group and they're like, hey, like they all go, they all come separately, sit in their same chairs, have the, have their shared experience, and then leave, and and they don't really kind of they don't talk about it, and I I I, I love that. I think that's amazing. In watching this documentary, we get to meet all of these fascinating people who, as as you're saying, a lot of them, you know, confess that they don't really know each other outside of, you know, seeing each other at screenings and even then. Uh, and I, I sort of liked your journeyman uh, adventure through their world. Uh, after making this, what, what did you learn from these Phantom fans, if anything? Oh, shit. That some of them were anti-vaxxers, that some of them like Trump. <laughs> like Facebook is a hell of a thing. Like you meet people and they have one love and it kind of combines everybody and makes everybody, you know, feel together. But it's really funny. Like one, like one or two of the Phantom fans are, is hardcore, like anti-vax and, and it's just kind of like, and to watch the movie now, I'm like, Oh, it's hard. That's sad. Um, but I mean, what, but what, that's kind of a negative and I shouldn't say that, but I don't feel bad about saying negative about Trump. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> actually it's interesting that, um, that sort of cultural part of the Phantom of the Paradise where it didn't speak necessarily to a cult's shared values, which often these cult fan bases have, right? So, you know, if you're in the cult of John Waters or the cult of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a big thing that drew you to it was liberation, was, um, you know, uh, absurd comedy, was making fun of people in power and and quote-unquote normalcy. Um, so you, you would be hard-pressed probably to find anti-vaxxers and Trump fans you know, in the cult of Rocky Horror or John Waters. Not that they don't exist. I'm sure they do. But it's interesting that Phantom of the Paradise, you know, it doesn't really uh, have maybe the same shared values uh, as those other films do. And what what really draws people to it and what, especially the folks in your your um, 
your film mentioned repeatedly is their love for the music. They really connected with the music. They loved the music. They hadn't heard music like this before. And it's true. The music is fabulous. Yes. So it's almost like they're a fan of this film, um, but they're also, you know, a fan of, it's almost like a, a fan of a band or something. I mean, it's so funny in, in popularity. If like sexually, if, if like Joe Bryant is the rock or picture show and basically Phantom of the Paradise is queen. You know what I mean? Like Rocky Horror Picture Show is a little too queer for the Winnipeggers, but they like the the amount of queer in, in Phantom of the Paradise is just enough. Yeah, there is for sure queerness in it, which is uh, you know, another interesting thing that the difference between the way the queerness is presented in a movie like Phantom of the Paradise where the director and the guy writing the movie are straight versus Rocky Horror, where it's Richard O'Brien, you know, a queer man. It is different. I'm not saying that Phantom of the Paradise is homophobic or anything at all. I actually really enjoy um, the beef character a lot, but I will say that it's not as celebratory, you know, of the queerness as maybe Rocky Horror is. Well, no, because, I mean, like, and, and like one is a sissy, and 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 Frank and Furter, like, I mean, the thing about the thing about Tim Curry is he's threatening because he's fucking hot. Yeah, and like he's unquestionably like the greatest, like the greatest scene in that movie. Even as a kid, it left an impression. Was like he goes for Brad and he goes for Janet, and they both like you know what I mean. It's just kind of like that's titillating and that's yeah. dangerous. Like Frank could get your girl, <laughs> like or your guy. Absolutely. <laughs> but I am interested, especially Malcolm, because you you uh, explore queer themes so often in your work. You know, Brian De Palma in a lot of... Do I ever. <laughs> Brian De Palma in a lot of ways is a filmmaker who quite frequently knocks on the door of queerness. But I think because, as far as we know, he is a straight man, uh, does not uh, always seem to access it in ways that, as Peaches is saying, like maybe Rocky Horror or Richard O'Brien do. But do you think that because of that, that that sort of outsider look in, it provides, I mean, your film very frequently, very uh, directly features a queer person who embraced their queerness because of this movie. And, and uh, I'm interested just sort of in that journey, how maybe this kind of rougher version allows other people to stick their foot in the water as well. I think like Brian De Palma sees queerness the way kind of Hitchcock saw queerness. And it's some, it's kind of, um, it's an interesting aberration. I mean, like De Palma's created some very provocative, like dressed to kill. Like he's done some very provocative things with sexuality and stuff that have been incredibly controversial. I mean, it's he's, he's a very interesting filmmaker. Um, and I don't think, like in, in the documentary, when they when they talk about how 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 uh, that character got brought up, like the actor, they did him like a sissy, <clears throat> like it was it like they they like they basically it was a hyper version of queer that essentially you know there's a sense of mocking to it, a sense of mocking in the way that a '70s liberal would feel that they're being accepting. If that makes any sense, it it absolutely does, and I think. 
I think in some ways, okay, this is going to sound, especially especially on our podcast dedicated to celebrating the Phantom of the Paradise, um, which, you know, I think we all agree that we love and, and we yeah. do. I mean, I, I've been endlessly inspired by this film, but I think because we're three queer people um, having this conversation, we're more easily able to kind of access this thing that that is harder to discuss with fans of Phantom of the Paradise who aren't queer, which is um, that there is there we can recognize the difference between something like uh, Frankenfurter and beef. And, you know, it is it's it's sort of that thing where it's not necessarily mean spirited. I wouldn't call it homophobic, but it's also not something that I'm going to, you know, that my favorite character in the film, of course, is, you know, the Phantom, because you know that's that that's the most exciting you know character the best looks beef is basically you know fabulous but also uh played as the butt of a joke you know and frankenfurter is never ever the butt of the joke no i mean that exactly i mean you you like frankenfurter is somebody you'd love to fuck you know beef is somebody that you, you're supposed to laugh at right but i mean yeah. I, I like but again there's the 70s was very complicated for queer representation just to have it to be represented at all um is exciting and just kind of like oh I, you know i you know maybe you know maybe that's not exactly what i look up to but oh it's a representation of some form of, of queerness so i i don't know like i i I don't judge like like a lot of people judge that kind of stuff harshly. I just kind of like like the movie Cruising and stuff, which is like, you know what I mean. Everybody gets really hung up on kind of the negative stereotypes and that. And I'm just like, hey man, sometimes it's nice just to be represented. Yeah, and I think there's a, something to be said for those of us who grew up with those representations and identified with those representations that you know intellectually we can all agree were maybe negative because that's all there was, you know? Um, But, but we also have the right to, you know, reclaim them in a way. And, you know, I think this conversation is happening more and more. It's like, I loved Norman Bates. And part of what I loved about him was that he was relatable to me. And it sounds so twisted and so fucked up because, you know, he's obviously really, you know, uh, a, a bad person. Uh, you know, he kills people. But, you know, he was a sissy and he had mommy issues. And I really related to him. And I also loved, you know, uh, Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. I loved fucking Buffalo Bill, you know. Intellectually, I agree with the, you know, people that protested Hollywood for only putting out representations like that. But we've reached a place where we can, you know, um, hopefully say, you know what? I like Sleepaway Camp. I know it's problematic. I know it's offensive, but it's okay for me to like it. Like I can reclaim this. Well, it's also the discerning, uh, rec- you're right, it's the discerning reclamation of camp in a lot of ways. And, you know, it, even if something is problematic by the modern standard, if we don't talk about it, then we don't learn from it. The, the, the notion of just like striking it from the record is even worse. I think if we take these things and hold them up in a different way, that's that's the power. That's reclaiming the power. I agree with that. So, Malcolm. Yes. Uh, what is it about Phantom of the Paradise uh, that you actually, you know, uh, 
loved or fell in love with? Was it the music? Was it the visuals? Was it the story? What was your connection to it before you knew about Winnipeg? I mean, I, you know, I had seen it as a kid and it had left an impression. And another thing, like Paul Williams, I mean, Paul Williams invaded my childhood and invaded a lot of people's childhood in ways more than most people would know. Like big things for me as a kid, Bugsy Malone was a big thing when I was a kid. Um, the Rainbow Connection was a big thing when I was a kid. Smoking the Bandit was a big thing when I was a kid. Like, Paul Williams had his footprint. Like, Paul Williams doesn't get as much credit. Like, he doesn't get as much credit as he really deserves. As just kind of like this really, he didn't have any kind of conventional look, but he wrote beautiful music for Barbara Streisand. Like, you know, right for like fucking that. Talk about a man going for a queer's heart, um, a young gay boy's heart, like, you know, evergreen. Like, the man is, um, I don't know. Like, he's just, he, like, there's something, he, there's magic in that man. Um, and essentially, like, and he's all over Phantom. Phantom is very much part of, part of him. And he was very much part of helping create the film and creating Swan and, you know, and that kind of, um, so I don't know. I think the whole Paul Williams, Paul Williams of it all is what really draws me the strongest. So it would be the music. It's just Paul Williams himself. Do you have a favorite song from the film? Yeah, uh, a hell of it. It's a good one. The Closer. Yeah, which he also performed on a Hardy Boys episode, if I'm not mistaken. Fucking right he did. And I think he did it. He's done it a couple of places. But yeah, I mean, the music, it, it does have great music. The, the funny thing is, is that I really am a Rocky. I love Rocker Picture Show. And some would argue there could be only one. You can, you know, you got to like one or the other. I mean, I like, I don't know. Like, I certainly listen. I, I, I've watched Rock Herpix Show a lot more. But there's certain things about the style. De Palma is such an incredibly um, interesting director, visually, stylistically. And I think that the movie, just, just it's got style for days. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it was a huge inspiration to me, the style of the film. It still is. It's actually a, like a go-to when I have to do, you know, some sort of mood board or, you know, be inspired by, you know, to, to, to pitch a look for something. I love the style of The Phantom of the Paradise. Um, and, and getting back to what you said about Paul Williams, I think you and I might be of similar age because, um, you know, the way you describe Paul Williams in your childhood, I completely connect with. And, I wonder if there is um, a bit of a you you got to work with Paul and and uh, interview him for the movie. I mean, I would imagine that pouring your uh, creative energy into any movie, but especially a movie where you're you're creating music for it as well as uh, co-starring in it, you know, really uh, giving it your all. It had to have been just such um, a bummer to watch it completely tank at the box office. Um, you, you really get the sense watching your film that Paul has an earnest, sincere appreciation uh, for the fans in Winnipeg and the fans beyond Winnipeg, obviously. W what was your sense, you know, um, talking with him? Is, is Am I right? Is that that sort of... It almost seems like he has a sweet, uh, you know, affection for them. 
they have a mutual admiration society as much, and it's really wonderful, as much as Winnipeg loves Paul Williams, Paul Williams gives it right back. Paul Williams goes to Winnipeg and he's the Beatles. Paul Williams is doing shows in 1975 and 1976 just in Winnipeg. Like he, like literally he would, like he would go there and do shows and girls would scream and cry. And it's kind of been a constant, like they never left him. He would do, he would come back and like literally, like he knew his set list when he was kind of doing the, you know, the cabaret rounds that was very popular in kind of the, the 70s and 80s. He went to Winnipeg, he had to play Phantom songs. But he loves that. And he, he, look, Paul Williams didn't have to agree to be in this movie. He's a busy, busy man. It's, I mean, when I kind of pitched him the idea, it wasn't even a question. It seems to me, too, that he because of the music and the touring was sort of the only cast member for a while that was kind of hip to the Winnipeg cause. Was that sort of your experience? Uh, yeah, I know that Phantom Palooza clued a lot of them in, but was this kind of blissfully unaware to the rest of the cast, except for Paul Williams until uh, these events started happening? Um, well, it began, Paul was always the big one that they wanted. Um, and he would like, basically, there were, they had several events, and the first one was attended by um, William Finley, who's an incredible character character actor. He's been in a bunch of other De Palma movies. Uh, William Finley was the initial kind of one that kind of was really charmed. Like they reached out to Bill first, and he was the first one, and then he kind of was the canary in the coal mine that kind of like he went and he went to Winnipeg and he came back and he told everybody like, you got to check this out. So like the following year, um, a bunch of people from uh, the band went and then finally they got Paul and Jessica Harper, um, which, which, which was the big uh, event they had. And, and Paul came, Paul's been back a couple of times. Like interviewing Paul Williams is the only is the first time and only time thus far that I've been starstruck. To be just sitting there talking to that guy was it was very hard to do the interview. At one point when I was talking to him, we we're waiting uh, to change something on the camera. And I said, "Paul, you gotta just tell you like you 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 sang one of my favorite songs ever." And I hit him with one, and I, I wasn't intentional, but one of my favorite songs ever is. Uh, Burt Reynolds directed a movie called The End, which is another one of my favorite movies of all time. And in that movie, the opening song is a song called Another Fine Mess that Paul Williams sang and wrote. And I said, I, and I was talking to him, and I was like, that's one of my favorite songs ever. And he started singing to me, and I almost cried. Wow. That is so cool. Oh, that's so great. Well, I have to say, for for all the people listening, uh, this this episode has been really fun for us because we love the Phantom of the Paradise, but we've really been able to dive deeper um, in part, you know, thanks to your movie, uh, The Phantom of Winnipeg, and learn about the the the, the real cult and the uniqueness of this cult. Um, and, and we've been able to uh, interview Ari, who who does the Phantom Archives, and uh, Phil Nobile. Uh, who is the editor of Fangoria magazine and a huge fan of this film. And I think in many ways, the, the, the story of the fans of this film is, is the real 
exciting story. And and they're the ones who really, you know, gave back to Paul Williams, who gave them so much. And, uh, you know, I, I really love that. Um, now, for listeners. Oh, you talk to those fellows as well? Yes. Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bill, Bill is a much bigger fan of Phantom than I am. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it was really fun to talk to Phil because, you know, he, he, I grew up with Fangoria Magazine. I'm always, you know, really tickled anytime I get to interact with Phil, the editor of Fangoria Magazine. But he's such a Phantom nerd that when we were talking to him, you know, we could see him on video and he's holding up his helmet and his memorabilia and his enamel pens. And I, I just love it because... That, that, you know, that that fandom is so pure and, and clearly he's another one who was touched by this film in a very specific way as a kid, um, you know, and, and he, he, he he carries it with him his whole life, you know, and he's probably seen more. We played um, a Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, fantastic film festival, and they did a special Fangoria for the festival. And we got put on the fucking cover, and like that to me, like it, it hit me, it, 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 like it hit me hard emotionally. Like to see something I made on, like in the Fangoria headline, it, it fucked with my head. Like it really fucked with my head, and in a in a wonderful way. I was gonna say, well, it should. That that's I I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Well, it's super cool too, Malcolm, because you know you're talking about this movie that you're tracking the history of, and by making this documentary and landing on the cover of Fangoria, you have become part of this movie's history, and so people are now going to discover and join the cult of the Phantom of the Paradise because of you. Um, because of the, because of Winnipeg. I mean, I I could I could never. I mean, that's such a generous thing to say because of because of Paul and people people Winnipeg. Hopefully more people like I just asked some questions like these people's fandom was very real and palatable. And like and Paul is, you know, it, it, it was a privilege to, you know, it was a privilege. Like sometimes you just jump onto something that really, you know, you don't have to be too clever. You just have to pay attention and ask a few questions and people will tell you these wonderful stories about the things they love. And that just happened. I just happen to have that privilege of just like, I didn't. I didn't have much to do with it, but I sure am fucking glad that they let me film it. Well, you you did a really great job, and for anyone who uh, hasn't seen either film, Phantom of the Paradise or Phantom of Winnipeg, uh, it's a great double feature. Um, and I'm looking it up now. If you are in the United States, uh, Phantom of Winnipeg's available at Prime on Amazon. Uh, Google Play, Apple TV, YouTube. Um, is there a- anything else you you'd like to mention as far as where people can see it, Malcolm? Phantom Winnipeg. Yes, Phantom Winnipeg. We're we're actually it's not. Uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna do something interesting with the release of that film. <laughs> Wait. So I'm um, looking. At, I'm I'm actually listening. <laughs> just because I'm a fucking. I'm listing off where you can see Phantom of the Paradise, uh, telling the listeners it's Phantom of Winnipeg, and I'm totally wrong. No, Phantom of Winnipeg. Like we played two film festivals, won awards at both film festivals, and then the pandemic came. Uh, like we were just kind of like, yeah, look at our fucking movie. It's a me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so like they. So like we we kind of. Yeah, you enter this void of like, all right, well, what, what now? And I, I, I figured out my what now, 
and like I haven't I haven't talked about this publicly at all, but I think we're gonna put it out as a physical media only release. We're gonna release it only on DVD and Blu-ray. Oh wow, wow! Well, it's a must-get, listeners. I I enjoyed this documentary very much. But I mean, I figure like it's look anybody who anybody who's a fan of Phantom of the Paradise already has a Blu-ray or DVD player. I think. Um, and essentially, it's just like I don't know. I've always I, I'm a big fan of physical media. Like I think it's part of the whole call. You've got to like look. You've got to have a DVD or Blu-ray player if you're into any cult film whatsoever, because just the availability of that shit is so hard on so much of it. Like I still have a VHS player because there's you know if I want to watch Looking for Mr. Goodbar, I have to watch it on VHS. There was a video rental place called Suspect Video in the '80s. And I remember, like, they had a copy of Multiple Maniacs of Mondo Trasha, um, which were impossible to, like, this is the 80s, you couldn't find anything. But, of course, they were the divine movies that I hadn't seen yet. So I basically took the train, 13 years old, and, like, hauled my ass down to Suspect Video, paid 50 bucks for a membership just to rent those two movies, Multiple Maniacs of Mondo Trasha. But once you had the membership, it's like, oh, what's this movie? What's that? Honeymoon Killers? What's that? And, like, you just get introduced to this kind of world. So I think when you make people work a little harder to, to see something that they hear about, I think that it really kind of opens them up to more things. Um, maybe that's just me being an idiot or hopeful or whatever, but that was my experience. So that's kind of the way I'm thinking about with releasing this in a weird kind of dimensional way. Maybe it'll make somebody get a DVD player and maybe they'll look at for some other DVDs of movies that, you know, they, you know, that they can't stream that are really fucking cool. Is that a pipe dream? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> well, who knows? But I, I actually like the idea of um, making things a little harder to get because everything now is so accessible. Uh, it, it sort of takes some of the specialness away. You know, we used to have to jump through hoops to, you know, get these things and, you know, uh, just, just to, you know, be able to see something there, there you felt uh, fulfilled, you know, from the challenge of acquiring it. So I think you're doing a, a good thing and I, I hope the listeners will um, follow you and uh, get a DVD of the film and check it out for themselves. Um, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the Midnight Mass podcast and talking to us all about the cult um, that you've studied and documented. Um, and yeah, Malcolm, I hope that you'll stay in touch and I hope that you'll be another, uh, you know, on another one of our podcasts in the future, because, you know, this isn't the only cult that you have um, covered. You, you made a film about your friend, Kevin Smith, who I would describe as another bona fide, you know, cult the uh, maker of cult films. And so, you know, maybe we could have you back on in the future. I would be more than thrilled. Uh, like Josh, you asked me to do this. I was so, I was just so honored. I'm such a fan of what you do. And to, to, have to be, th I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm so happy and thrilled to be part of this. And anytime you want me back, I'd love to. Fabulous. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Malcolm. And, um, we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Roll on thunder, shine on lightning. The days are long and the nights are frightening. Nothing matters anywhere and that's the hell of it. 
Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well, some go wiser, you just grew older You never listened anyway, and that's the hell of it what a great interview with Malcolm. Uh, you know, I, I really can't express enough how great I think his documenting this phenomenon in Winnipeg is and talking to all of these people who are seemingly, you know, not connected, but being from this place, but their love of this movie. And uh, I think that, you know, as much as he downplays it himself, he really is is shining a light on such a singular phenomenon. And because uh, we, we've never seen this before, it's not like the apple took over Milwaukee or, you know, there was a, <laughs> a, you know, a cult of Wizard of Gore in Boise, Idaho. But like in Winnipeg, for some reason, the Phantom of the Paradise latched on. And I loved watching this movie, just ta- hearing the stories of each of the people uh, and how they kind of came to the movie. And one thing we didn't talk about at the top of the show, when did you first see this movie, Peaches? Gosh, that's a really good question. So I think... It was honestly after I had already begun doing uh, midnight movie shows. I think I was doing Midnight Mass, which uh, I was very young when I started it, uh, naturally. But, you know, I'd started Midnight Mass in 1998. And because I was working with um, film bookers out of Los Angeles who were booking midnight movie um, uh, series in other markets, uh, I was I was closely talking to them about what they were booking and they were confused by what I was booking um, because I was booking things like showgirls and no one was booking showgirls and they were booking things that would be considered more like college fare like um, a clockwork orange or you know a taxi driver they were doing these midnights in um, college towns and one of them said you should consider doing Phantom of the Paradise and I had to say what's that and then they said it's a Brian De Palma film so I felt really embarrassed because you know as a film (laughs) person I should have known a Brian De Palma film and I didn't know it so I I I I uh, well I seeked it out and I saw it and I loved it and I thought it was amazing and I couldn't believe that more people you know weren't talking about it that they hadn't seen it yeah, it's truly one of his under-the-radar pieces, especially in an era that has things like Carrie and Obsession and Dress to Kill and Blow Up. Uh, th- and I think it's because this movie is such an outlier. It's so weird. It's not easily classified. I uh, I discovered this movie on Late Night Cable, mm. to be honest, I, or one of the pay stations. I think my parents had Encore at the time, and they used to love to show Phantom of the Paradise after midnight. And even then, I was not a kid who went to, to bed early. And I just one night uh, kind of stumbled into it. And I was like, hey, that's that lady from Shock Treatment, which was a movie that I obsessively tracked down at a video store when I found out it existed. And when I saw Jessica Harper and knew that she was singing in this, I had to know what it was. And thank God I stayed up to watch it because I've loved this you movie. You were a kid since. looking for some Skinamax so you could rub one out. But you were <laughs> you were stuck with the Phantom of the Paradise instead. And you know what? Thank thank goodness. But yeah. you know, for for our fandom, there are people whose fandom and torch burn even brighter. And the next person that we're going to bring on is somebody who is on the record, in fact, uh, in in one of the greatest publications of all time, as being a fan. And that's Phil Nobile Jr., who we're going to be talking to right after this.
Welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the cult that makes it. And we are joined today not just by a fan of the Paradise Superfan and Death Records devotee, but the editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine, Phil Nobile Jr. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How are you guys? Doing great. We're doing great. We're excited to talk to you about this movie. Uh, and I, I guess the first question is, tell us just a little bit about your journey with Phantom of the Paradise. When did you discover it? How long have you been a fan, etc.? Well, I love telling you stories, but I hate telling you stories because someone does the math and figures out our ages when this happens, right? But, <laughs> um, yes. but fine. Um, early VHS days, right? Before there were blockbusters, there were like camera stores that also had videos. And, and my video store was Camera Video Showplace, and they had about 20 videos. And if you're looking at a 1984 era VHS shelf, there's one box that's going to jump out at you. And it's, of course, the iconic mask uh-huh. of the Winslow <laughs> Leach helmet screaming with those silver teeth. Um, it just called to me from the shelf and I didn't know what I was getting into, but and uh, I watched it. Uh, I was immediately obsessed, not just with the, the filmmaking of it, but the, the, the songs, the, um, the imagery, you know, I've been trying to analyze why, you know, there's, we all have those movies that hit us at a certain age and they get into our brains and they don't ever vacate. And, one of the things I think is, is fascinating about why Phantom hit for me is twofold. The, the soundtrack was not readily available in the 80s. I wasn't a vinyl person. We were in cassette purgatory back then, so I couldn't go buy an old LP and it was never on cassette. So the only way to hear that soundtrack was to put the movie in. So I played that movie like a record. I played it all the time. I probably had it every day for a year maybe. Uh, be, partially just because the songs are so catchy. But I also, I legitimately engaged with the story, not, not in an ironic way or, or a, a, a snobby, I'm above this material way. I thought it was like the height of melodrama. I was wrapped up in Winslow's journey. I, I was fascinated by every decision that was coming out of that film. And also keep in mind that in 84, we were eight years away from Rocky Horror being on VHS. Rocky Horror was a thing my older siblings went and saw and did, and it was apparently this rock and roll glam extravaganza, and, and it was a legend. It was a myth. I had no way to experience Rocky Horror, but I had Phantom of the Paradise. So much so that when I finally got around to seeing Rocky Horror, I was a little disappointed because, you know, my heart and soul belonged to Phantom at that point. <laughs> That's so great. And so it's so unusual, which is what makes, you know, uh, the phenomenon in Winnipeg so interesting. You know, can I ask, where were you? Where, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. New Jersey, okay. So, yeah, I was not part of that Winnipeg phenomenon. I heard about that later, uh, and I was fascinated by it. And then Malcolm and, and Sean's film uh, shined a light on that. I was at Fantasia, I want to say 2019, when they showed their film. And uh, as much as I enjoyed their film, what I really enjoyed was watching the cast of that film watch themselves on the film. They had all driven from mm. Winnipeg to Montreal, and they... <laughs> I, I just started cozying up to these folks because I wanted. I had an idea of, of, of a story in my head of you know, the one thing that his documentary can't show, which was the subjects of the documentary watching the documentary, you know, like right, uh, right. Uh, uh, watching a picture of a picture. Um, and I just found them to be fascinating people. And they were, they were devoted. They were dedicated. I watched them watch this movie three times in, in a 24-hour period. Wow. I, I because, mean, you know, the, the festival screened the film and then they screened it again. And some of the, they, they read all of them. They went to all of them. I love that. That is so great. And it must have been validating for them. And also, I love that they, well, you know, uh, 
the phenomenon of Phantom of the Paradise in many ways to me is is the cool cult movies, you know, uh, selection. Because I mean, I love Rocky Horror Picture Show. It changed my life. I mean, it it obviously was inspiring. But I also discovered the Phantom of the Paradise, and I understood there were layers to your cultness. And you know, let's face it, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is kind of like you know, one hundred and one. You know, it's 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 cult movie. You know, it, what do they call it? Um, the the gateway drug of cult movies maybe is you know Rocky Horror. Phantom of the Paradise is on another level, and it, it's because you're not really uh, amongst uh, fellow fans unless you're from Winnipeg. You know, you're kind of out there on your own. And, you know, it, it, it's also fascinating that they came out so close together, right? Uh, Phantom of the Paradise, 74. Rocky Horror, 75. Phantom of the Paradise, you know, bombed. It didn't go anywhere. You know, it, it never really had that kind of cult following until, you know, years later, except for in Winnipeg. And in 75, Rocky Horror comes out and it, it never goes away, right? It's it's around forever. People love it. So what do you think the difference was between, you know, audiences responding to a movie like Phantom and Rocky in 74 versus 75? Gosh, I, I'm, no, I'm no box office expert, so it'd be hard for me to say. And it's even more confusing when you consider it's the same studio, right? They're both 20th Century Fox releases. Someone, right. someone at 20th Century Fox decided to keep Rocky Horror playing in theaters and opted to not have that, uh, try to attempt that rather with Phantom of the Paradise, which you, again boggles the mind because, you, you know, when a, when a studio sees something successful, they try to copy it, right? So you've got another catalog title sitting right there, but it didn't happen. Uh, you know, as Paul Williams likes to say, it bombed everywhere but Paris and, and Winnipeg. And um, there's, no, there's no hard and fast way to figure out why and how it, it connected in Winnipeg. Uh, and not anywhere else. But I, as far as the cult of it goes, I think that it, that it, it took it just took a while for it to catch up. You know, there 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 um, there's a, dem, a democratizing effect to a cult movie, and we decide the canon ultimately. And I think that it's been gratifying to to live this long and see that now that there are these just beautiful little you know fan-made collectibles um like i bought this i bought this from is this from this is from france it's the dvd but it's a book it's all in french i can't read it i don't know why i bought it but it's it's (laughs) i had to have it and um it's hard to explain and you know the the frustrating thing about the winnipeg crowd is they kind of don't know why either they can't explain I didn't find one person when I did my story when I interviewed them that really could get their head around why the movie left the mark that it did on them when what I was struck by in the article that you wrote was sort of this disconnected tissue between the people of Winnipeg who all sort of worship at the altar of this movie. Because when you look at sort of the trajectory of a cult film, there tends to be a commonality of the people who gather around it. But your article sort of goes to great lengths to explain. It's it's more of a city thing. And a lot of these people don't have much in common outside of this film. So it's sort of unique in the cult canon in that way. Yeah, I, I was really surprised to find that. As I mentioned in the article, a, a hotel security guard sort of beelined across the lobby to us when he saw the Phantom Helmet, just because he wanted a picture with it. Um, there was a an unwell person who wandered into the screening who didn't know the screening was happening, but new song, new lyrics from the song. Um, when you mentioned the movie, because her dad had, 
had you know grown up watching it. So they weren't like some club together, but it was almost like maybe a, a, ho- a city's hockey team, hockey fans might, you know, they all have that in common, but you might not be friends with all the hockey fans uh, of that team. Um, you know, as the, one of the guys in the doc says, there's a Galapagos Island effect. It only happens there, and and it hasn't been thoroughly studied enough for anybody to get their head around why. Although I think Ari Cahan might have some theories that, that help with that. Um, but I think the distance of it is also a weird thing. Like, cause you, now you're two or three generations into the thing. That lady on the street didn't know why she knew the lyrics to that song. It was just part of her fabric. Right. Right. One thing that it's just a theory, but when you look at the film, it's very much, whereas Rocky Horror is sort of celebrating a culture, Phantom is very critical of the cultures it's depicting. Do you know what I mean? So it's right. it's not a celebration of glam. It's somebody kind of throwing shade at glam. And it's yeah. not a celebration of Sha-Na-Na, but it's somebody kind of turning their nose up at Sha-Na-Na. And I think that comes from Brian De Palma being a, not an old man, but, you know, uh, you know, maybe, you know, uh, spiritually a grouchy old man kind of like throwing a very cynical eye at the music business. So it's not a joyous sort of thing. It's a very dark thing. But the 12-year-olds in Winnipeg probably didn't map to that right away. They just love that music. Right. You know. Yeah, and I, I think at some point we're going to have to discuss Brian De Palma's obsession with queers. Uh, no one seems to ever talk about it, but I'm like, wait a second. Like, you know, he loves, you know, uh, you know, Dressed to Kill, Raising Cain. Like, you know, he loves trans killers. You know, there's sort of this this way that beef is portrayed where you go, is this a straight man making fun of queer people or is this okay? It's not Rocky Horror. You're right. Tim Curry embodying Frankenfurter with Richard O'Brien, a trans, queer, non-binary, you know, creator. You're right. It, it 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 is a celebration and maybe we feel that celebration. And maybe with De Palma, there is this part of De Palma's films where you're kind of left scratching your head. Like, should I be offended by this? You know, you're, you're not quite sure. Yeah, he's he's his uh, his position is is maybe a darker one, I think. Yeah, right. But he seems drawn to it for a reason too. You know, I think that oh, he yes. likes to explore that that otherness. Uh, Phil, one thing I was really uh, taken by in your article about the Winnipeg fans is something we don't see discussed a lot when it comes to cults around cinema is sort of the idea of the shelf life of a cult. And I think that you you explored that in the way that will this last? Will this Winnipeg legacy last? Because, you know, as, as people who are sort of indebted to this kind of film, I think we tend to think of it as going on forever. And was was that an aim of the article when you started writing it? Or was that something that kind of occurred to you while you were there witnessing the phenomenon and the people. Well, so, so all the people there um, either had children or grandchildren at that point and who came to see dad or grandpa in the documentary and they kind of couldn't give a shit about the movie. Um, so about Phantom of the Paradise. So t- that sort of s- was where the, the question mark sort of appeared over my head was what, what happens next and w- what will, I think the Winnipeg thing is, is going to be a finite thing ultimately um, the way that, I don't know, think of something that your grandfather was really into that you have a, a vague awareness of in that now. And it's weird to think that of something like Phantom of the Paradise, which is such a sort of a kind of transgressive and, and, and forward thinking thing for the, for the time it was made in and must have seemed like the Wizard of Oz to a bunch of suburban kids in dreary-ass Winnipeg in 1974, right? But 
um, it's it's somebody it's going to be somebody else's crusty old thing that gets thrown thrown in a drawer, which I guess is the way of all things, you know. Sadly, I think, and and then that's a bigger conversation because twelve year olds now are are ingesting content in a much different way than than when we all were when we were twelve. We were watching movies because movies were it's either movies or sitcoms, right? But now there's TikTok videos and 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 the YouTube channels where they're they're the very form of the content is fundamentally different for them. I don't know. I don't know what movies will look like in 50 years. Yeah. And I don't know what a catalog will have. I am baffled by the MGM spend or Amazon spending on a, a hundred year old movie catalog that it, 10, 10 years from now, you're not going to find an adult who wants to watch a feature film probably, but. <laughs> oh, don't say that. I can't believe you're saying that, but you it's might be dark. right. I, yeah, it's that's 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 a, a cynical uh, a viewpoint, but you know you might be right. However, I would I would sort of say that while the Winnipeg phenomenon might be fizzling out for obvious reasons, because like you said, that the, the the phenomenon happened in 1974, and then it was kept alive by a group of people who are getting older. Um, the internet, uh, and, and for you listeners who haven't been able to see what Michael and I have seen. Um, uh, Phil has has shown us his own phantom helmet uh, that he has at home. He's shown us an enamel pen. Uh, he's shown us a, a book uh, written in French with the DVD. Oh, he's got the cover of Fangoria magazine. It looks like who signed it? Paul? Signed by Paul Williams, of course. Paul, yes. Pa- yeah, Paul Williams. So I think that and and by y- you yourself putting it on the cover of Fangoria magazine and, and writing the story about um, the fandom. There is now this chance for Phantom to be seen by more people than it's ever been seen by before because of people like us talking about it, because of Fangoria magazine, because of the internet, the enamel pens. I've noticed way more Phantom stuff uh, popping up in all of my cult movie, you know, my T-shirt sites and all of that. Well, not to be not to be a downer again, but uh, Phantom <laughs> of the Paradise is now owned by Disney. So we will have to see. <laughs> what Disney's plans are for the for their 20th Century Fox catalog, and and it's it's going to have to be a somewhat proactive effort to to keep it in the eyeballs of people. Um, I you know a lot of us are wondering about that. You know uh, the 20th Century catalog, Planet of the Apes, all all of these other things that we grew up with are now under the Disney uh, umbrella, and Disney, as far as we're aware, has no plans to sort of keep physical media alive past a certain point. So. Yeah. Where will Phantom live? Where will people find Phantom? It's certainly not streaming anywhere right now. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so hold well, on to your discs. Here's your cynical question then: Who is uh, more of a Disney princess, Phoenix or Swan? <laughs> well, Swan is clearly you can you can almost picture the animated version of Swan as the Disney villain at this point. I think, yeah, that, you know, yeah. in some ways, there's a love hate idea of like, what if they readapted Phantom as a as an animated, or if they reverse engineered it, <laughs> right? You know the way they've been doing live action ones, but um, you know Swan, Swan is a Swan is a perfect Disney villain in, in a lot of ways. Well, we have to we have to keep the cult alive, and I'll, I will I will give you an example of, of a way that a cult has changed Disney's mind. Uh, you know, ten years ago, certainly fifteen years ago, but I will tell you that Disney. After Hocus Pocus bombed at the theaters, Disney washed its hands of it. They did not want anything to do with Hocus Pocus. There was nothing Hocus Pocus related in the theme parks for their Halloween parties. 
it was almost as if they wanted to, it to be invisible because it really tanked for them. You know, you can imagine they spent a lot of money. It had a lot of A-list stars in it. Uh, but because of fans, because of me, quite frankly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I will say that because of a lot of drag queens, uh, because of a lot of fans who grew up loving that movie, Disney uh, more recently has sort of opened its mind in the last few years to the fact that this is a property they might be able to milk, right? So they've they've you know put the witches back in. Well, no, for the first time ever, the witches started appearing in you know Halloween parades at Disney, and now they've announced a sequel with you know Bette Midler and Kathy Jimmy and Sarah Jessica Parker. That that is amazing, and that's completely. And only related to the fandom that that swirled around that property. So what we need to do, listeners, is um, we need to get Phil, the Phantom of the Paradise tattoo he's always wanted, <laughs> film it, and in other sorts of shenanigans. I, I guess we, I guess Michael, we need to create a stage show celebrating it. We got to build the cult up, and then Disney will, you know, they'll invest in it. Yes, you heard it here first, listeners. In five years' time, you can meet Peaches, Phil, and I at the Paradise in Orlando and Anaheim. There so. you go. <laughs> you know, that's that's the dream. Like, Hocus Pocus, I, I I was a little too old for Hocus Pocus, but I walked into a Spirit Halloween store one day, and there was a Hocus Pocus section. Yeah, Not a costume, not a thing. A corner of the store. And um, yeah. I, it, you're right. It, it's it's that thing I talked about, about how the, the canon is ultimately decided by, by us. And... And then the, and then the brands come around. Um, yeah. And they did it. They they did it with I think Nightmare Before Christmas too, which I think didn't light the world on fire, but grew and grew and grew as the years went by. Um, yeah, it, there needs to be some sort of uh, inciting event for Phantom of the Paradise. And and, and uh, Peaches, maybe you're it's it's on your shoulders. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's your burden. I'll do my best. I mean, you know, I think maybe, yeah, we, we, we might need to get a bigger uh, celebrity to endorse it than me. But I will say this. It starts with us. We're the creepy crawly folks in the bottom levels who start to, you know, uh, we we t- make the, uh, the real taste, you know, and then the bigger celebrities kind of latch on to what we're doing. So, you know, we need, let's face it, you know, Ryan Murphy should try to remake it or something. And, uh, you know, then it would explode. I, I don't think that's a good idea between between <laughs> us. But now um, it's in the but, universe. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, well, Phil, we are so grateful that you came and spoke to us. And I've said it to you before, but I'll just say it here for all the listeners. If you had told me as a small kid who was, you know, a, a, an avid subscriber to Fangoria magazine that someday I'd have something, some weird medium called a podcast, and I'd be interviewing the editor of Fangoria magazine, I would not have believed you. Um, so anytime I get to work with you or talk with you, I just love what you do. I love that you're keeping the magazine alive. I'm a proud subscriber. I also really appreciate your inclusivity. Um, you've done a phenomenal job, and we we really are just so thrilled to uh, be friends with you and, and to have you on the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. More than mutual. Thank you so much. I always love talking to the two of you. Life at last. Salutations from the other side. I can see that you're the devil's pride. Do you realize that all of you don't have some home? Boy, you hated that was part of you. I'm your nightmares coming true. And that was Phil Nobile Jr., the editor of Fangoria Magazine, uh, who 
Michael knows very well because Michael, you have actually written cover stories for Fangoria. You're a cover ghoul. Yes, I've done two two in a row. I did one on Freaky, and then uh, the the awesome film uh, directed by Chris Landon and co-written by Chris Landon and Michael Kennedy, friends of the podcast. And uh, also, I did a cover story about cult movie in its own right. Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night Two. Uh, so oh, yeah, so seek seek those out. They're both still available in the Fango store. <laughs> you know, we might have to we might have to actually. Uh, put Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 on our list. Well, it probably already is on the list, I would assume, but... I think so, Move it up. I love that movie. Well, I I think talking to Phil was just so great because I I, I love Phil for so many reasons. Uh, And one is that I feel like he... I've loved Fangoria since I was a kid. I mean, Fangoria was my Bible as a kid. You know, I had a subscription, and I was so excited every time it came out. I used to order all the shit out of the back of the magazine. You could, you know, you could order, uh, you know, movie scripts and movie posters, and I I was such a Fango kid. Um, But I will say that Fangoria... um, was maybe a little limited in scope, you know, as far as what it would, you know, kind of cover or embrace. Um, And, you know, as the times have changed, I think Phil has done such a great job of kind of opening up the the, the Fangoria genre world to uh, things like queer horror and um, black horror. You know, Phil, we didn't even talk about this, but Phil... Uh, is the producer of that brilliant film Horror Noir, uh, which you can see on Shudder. Um, and, you know, he's just a great guy, and I love that he loves Phantom of the Paradise, and I'm really glad we got to talk to him. Me too. And, uh, you know, what's really great is that our Phantom train does not end here. Uh, no. As you, as you alluded to in the beginning, uh, we have saved for the last the mayor of the Phantom Paradise fan club. I spell yeah. that P-H-A-N in this case. Uh, <laughs> Ari Khan, who uh, runs the most extensive and exhaustive and thorough Phantom of the Paradise archive on the internet, Swan Archives. And uh, Ari has been with Phantom since the very beginning. And we are going to talk to him a little bit about that trajectory and what it is like to kind of foster a cult. But in a time before even social media allowed you to connect with your fellow fans. So, uh, yeah, Ari Khan, here we go. So earlier you spoke to the fleeting feeling of community uh, that existed before the internet and just sort of how it was piecemeal, people at conventions or, you know, waiting for a screening. And then with the founding of the website in 2006, even though it's silly to ask because I know the litmus changes, but did you see the pendulum swing in the other direction? Were you suddenly able to connect in ways? Yeah, I mean pre-internet, if you ran into another Phantom fan, it was a sheer fortuity and it was like discovering the other person in the country who shared your perversion, right? It was like, (laughs) it was an amazingly exciting thing because it was so rare. And of course, you know, with the internet, you can go out and easily find people with the same car problem you have and the same diagnosis you have and who love the same movie you love. And it's, it's gotten so much easier. And then putting up the site 
I didn't have to go looking for people anymore. People found me, and I started getting mail from every day from people all over the world who said, I had no idea that I wasn't the only one, you know. Um, that is and, so cool. I mean, yeah. it, it's just sort of like, I actually think it's cooler than, you know, things like Rocky because, you know, there's a specialness to this fandom because it's more niche in a way. The fact that it's so touching for you personally to find another fan because you felt alone, you know, in the world uh, and the internet changing things. I have to ask, though, when did you find out about Winnipeg? Because, you know, of course, we're, we're going to talk to Malcolm and that whole phenomenon is its own unique story. And I'm wondering, when did the scattered fans, you know, Ari, poor Ari alone in the Bay Area, you know, not knowing that there's this Canadian magical place where where, <laughs> where Phantom of the Paradise was, you know, uh, lauded by everyone. When did you when did you find out about them? And and it's particularly appalling because I am Canadian. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm from I'm from Toronto, but uh, I found out about them in 2005 when. Um, I think it was Ain't It Cool News posted a little blurb that they were going to be throwing a little, you know, thing called Phantom Palooza and that William Finley and Garrett Graham were going to be uh, there. And I had never heard of this Winnipeg thing, although honestly, neither had it. The people in Winnipeg didn't know there was a Winnipeg thing either. Um, but. Uh, so I went up there, and I well, I got in touch with the organizers at, ahead and offered to bring up a bunch of posters and things to decorate their theater lobby so that it would look like it was 1974 or 75 again, um, and um, hit it off with, with some of the organizers, and it was wonderful. I felt like I had, you know, finally found my, my tribe or my people, and then um, the following year, uh, Doug... Uh, Carlson up there, and I kind of took the lead in putting on Phantom Palooza 2, which was the event that, you know, people talk to the to the extent anyone talks about anything having to do with Phantom. This is, you know, the event people talk about where um, it was a kind of a daring thing where we got the entire original cast back together. And um, I didn't want it to be like those sad conventions where the the celebrities sit behind a table and charge people to sign a picture and it's kind of like they're in the zoo. You know, we had a bunch of performers coming. So we put together a band, a local band up there to back them up and they went on stage and performed their songs from the film and Paul Williams put on a full-length concert uh, emphasizing material from Phantom. And uh, in the morning when he was rehearsing, I I got Jessica Harper out of her hotel room and took her down to the rehearsal, hoping that she would be kind of inspired, and she was, and she decided then and there that, you know, she would do Old Souls uh, on stage with Paul's band, and I took her back to the hotel, and she spent all day in her hotel room relearning the song so that she could sing it that night. She knocked it out of the park, and... Garrett Graham sang uh, Life at Last, which, of course, in the film, that's not his vocal. It's it's Ray Kennedy's, and he proved that he could have sung it. <laughs> uh, so it was it was fabulous. And, you know, I got to spend the, the weekend with the idols of my childhood. 
Um, and, you know, fortunately, they turned out to be nice. Sometimes I hear you shouldn't meet your idols, but I've, I've been very, very fortunate, and they have remained friends ever since. So it's, uh, it was, that was just a wonderful experience for me. But what was the question? Well, I, I, I think you, you definitely answered it um, because I, I wanted to know how you uh, discovered the Winnipeg crew, you know, and it sounds like the Winni- like you said, the Winnipeg crew wasn't even really totally aware of each other in that in 2005, there was this sort of shift where some of the folks in Winnipeg put it out there. They were going to do the first Phantom Palooza and Ain't It Cool News uh, ran the, the, the blurb. Um, but I love that you went up there and that second event that you were, you know, um, producing with them, you know, you watch the footage in Malcolm's beautiful movie and you can feel the electricity. Like, you know, as someone who produces these style of events, there is a certain kind of love that these people get to experience. You know, I remember doing shows with, you know, Mink Stoll or Tura Satana where they hadn't actually felt the love yet of their cult. But when they're put on stage, you know, and get to, to sort of be an icon and receive a full audience's adoration, you know, a really true cult audience going nuts. And you did that. You gave them that moment, that phantom moment of, you know, it, it's like being at a Prince concert. You know, the the, the footage, you know, is insane. It was um, wonderful to, you know, as a fan kind of all you would like to do is find a way to give something back that would be meaningful to the people that you're a fan of and not just, uh, you know, oh, I love your work. And, you know, um, and this was that opportunity. And yeah, we, we made the most of it. They, for the most part, hadn't seen each other since they had made the film. Um, we had a little reception for them in the hotel the night before that nobody knew about so they could just see each other privately and get to know each other again. And um, being a fly on the wall at that was was incredible. Yeah. Um, and they were um, they were happy for it. It, it was, uh, yeah, it's it's indescribable to be able to, and here I'm supposed to be describing it, but, <laughs> but it really is, it, it's indescribable to be able to do something like that. As far as Winnipeg, I, I just want to add that, you know, when you have something like this in a San Francisco or in LA or in New York, there are events like this where authors, writers, actors, directors come and do presentations. This does not happen in Winnipeg, you know? Um, sure, a, a band that's touring will stop in Winnipeg, but you don't have events like this. And um, it felt up there like there's like 30 years or 40 years, whatever it was, of anticipation that was just kind of all being released in one night. And nobody could believe it was happening and nobody could believe that it was happening there and to them. And uh, yeah, Malcolm's film captures a lot of that. It's it's wonderful to see. Well, again. when we started this conversation, I, I sort of asked you where you were then when you first discovered this movie and how that journey began. But I, I, as we wrap up, I sort of want to ask you where you are now, because very few fans get the trajectory that you get. You know, a lot of us have a movie that we love and it's just part of our lives. But you, through your love and your preservation and your work, have contributed to the history of this movie. And did you ever think at 13, seeing this with young Frankenstein, 
that this movie was going to be part of your life in this way. Oh, absolutely. I was totally playing the long game. I knew it would end just like this. <laughs> uh, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> uh, who, who, who would imagine something like that? And then um, I never would have thought in a million years that um, I would get hold of the footage that had been deleted from the film against the director's wishes, put it back together, that he would like that I had done that, um, that we could screen it here and there for people. So that, in fact, a couple of years ago, um, we did a screening in Los Angeles for the producer and members of the cast and crew, none of whom had ever seen the film the way that it was supposed to be seen with those scenes intact. And they were blown away. And um, it was, uh, it was a, a wonderful day and we got everybody together and, we got other f sort of famous influential fans of the film like Edgar Wright and Guillermo del Toro and, and uh, Brett Easton Ellis to write letters. And we sent them all off to Led Zeppelin, who had been the ones who had you know threatened to sue in the first place and got those scenes removed, hoping that they would change their mind and allow the film to be distributed this way because Mr. De Palma was behind it, the producer was defined behind it. Fox was willing to do it if Led Zeppelin would agree and, you know, bless their hearts, they got back to us almost immediately and said no. <laughs> so, wow. so. I, I, I'm so mad. that I, I can't believe that. I mean, I, I read about that and I have to say, Ari, I wonder, I mean, you're here in the Bay Area. I'm San Francisco. Like, what would it take to sort of twist your arm to have one of these secret screenings here in San Francisco, maybe hosted by Peaches, you know, and, and you know, because I really... Now, I got to show this movie in Switzerland once a few years ago. I was asked to, to program a cult movie series. And actually, I'll say this. The Europeans actually have a decent print of the film. It looked beautiful. And uh, it was, you know, lovely. Um, I actually had forgotten how crappy the... Clay Theater's print was like somehow I think the excitement of the event was enough that I didn't you know focus on that but with you having this secret print that's not really technically allowed to be shown maybe there's like a workaround you well, and I could you wouldn't have to twist out. very hard I've been showing it at film festivals here okay. and there you know Fox made an agreement with Led Zeppelin that they wouldn't distribute it I never made any such agreement. I feel fine <laughs> about there we showing go. it here and there, as long as we don't do too much to attract attention to what's going on. Sure. So right. no, no arm twisting needed. And and we showed it in San Francisco last year at the Hole in the Head Film Festival. Ah, that's what I... Okay, I remember that. Here's my thought. What if we did a live Midnight Mass podcast event where maybe we talked to Ari just about his work? And if people stayed yeah. in the theater <laughs> afterwards... Yeah, exactly, and got a special treat. Well, Ari, we'll be, we'll, we'll be following up. What happened at Hole in the Head and has happened at a couple of other places is... You know, in the projection booth, you've got the the regular, the regular version of of the film, and you've also got mine. And somebody makes a mistake, sure, you know, yeah. and the wrong one gets thrown in the server, and it happens. <laughs> okay, I love that. I love it. So, stay tuned, listeners, because I, I I think you know that's something Michael and I would love, love, love to to do. Um, and you know, I I, I was going to ask if you think there's a, a a chance for Phantom Palooza 3. 
Um, it reminds me that you actually were asked to deliver a eulogy for William. And, you know, I'm guessing that maybe because, you know, the star of the film has passed on, it might make a difference as far as whether you plan to do another Phantom Palooza. Um, so you're a very good guesser. There have been follow-on events in Winnipeg almost every year called Phantom at the Met, where they screen the film, there's a lovely buffet dinner, and there's a band called Swanage, which is a Phantom cover band that generally performs the soundtrack after the film. And, uh, you know, they have had various members of the cast come up as one-offs for that. But, um, no, my feeling is that um, throwing a Phantom Palooza without William Finley would be um, disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And there's also something, there's something sort of vaguely Star Trek convention about it, sort of vaguely pathetic. It's like you're trotting them, and here they are one more time, you know. Yeah. I, doing it that first time was like lightning in a bottle. It hadn't been done before. It was amazing to prove that you could actually do it. Um, doing it year after year, it, you know, become cabaret. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with cabaret, but, you know, I, I, I prefer just the memories of the first one. Um, and especially now that that's been preserved to some extent on film, I don't feel like I'm, you know, like not doing it again d- deprives people of an opportunity to to experience that. Well, I'm so glad that you did it. I'm so glad it was captured on film. I certainly relate to the spirit of your obsession. Uh, and Thank and you. And I feel like you and I, you know, have had similar experiences because I was very obsessed with John Waters and Mink Stoll and Divine, and I grew up in Maryland. And the fact that I'm friends with those people now it is still very strange, that sort of crossover. I will always be a fan first, you know, and, and as normal as it is for them to have, you know, lunch or dinner with me, I'm always still the kid, you know, who was so in love with them. And I know that you got to have that experience, you know, with Phantom. And, you know, I'm so happy that you did and that you also been able to to put together the online archive and that you're in the Bay Area. Selfishly, I'm realizing we can we can do a Midnight Mass event together, you know, in the near future. Anytime. You're my you're my sister in making the, the fan to friend transition. Yes, exactly. With, the, with your <laughs> with your childhood idols. Yes, exactly. Right there we, with you. Yeah. I loved when you wrote that in the email, the fan to friend transition, yeah. because I, I was like, there we go. Because, you know, I grew up loving Elvira. I grew up loving these people. It just is bizarre to me that I built a career where I get to now meet them and and become friends with them and I am I'm so grateful and I'm like really glad that you've had that experience too and um and this this uh whole Led Zeppelin thing is just it's like uh, you know you know I wish I had been to the hole in the head screening one thing about getting some level of success that's a bummer is you miss a lot of things that happen in your own backyard because you know I'm on I'm on tour or you know out of town or whatever so um I I think we have to make this happen, right, Michael? I absolutely think it needs to happen. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, well, Ari, thank you so much for coming on. You're the ultimate Phantom fan, so we're honored to have you. And uh, we will for sure be in touch. Thank you. I look forward to it. Right, that was Ari Khan, uh, who we have dubbed the the mayor of Phantom 
fandom. <laughs> that was fierce. Um, all right, so that that is really a thorough uh, look at the different um, ways in which Phantom of the Paradise has become a truly unique cult movie, you know, because of the uniqueness of its cult. And it's been so much fun. Um, talking to all these folks and 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 talking to you, of course, Michael, and re revisiting this fantastic movie. Um, yeah, and I am really excited about this this event that we we might be able to do this in person event with Ari, a midnight mass screening of this sort of um, original illegal. Let's face it, we would be breaking the law. We're gonna have an outlaw screening. Yeah, and you know what? I'm all about doing something in defiance of Led Zeppelin. Honestly, you know they used to tr- they used to trash hotel rooms. Let's uh, let's get wild and live yeah. a life. Okay, oh, all right. Because this is you know we're we're t- t- we're not we're not interested in your stairway to douchebaggery. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can just take your uh, uh, I don't know what's another Led Zeppelin immigrant song and. Shove it up your, I don't know. I can't do this. I don't even know what to, I don't know Led Zeppelin enough. I know. And the shame is, is I really like those records, but I just don't oh, yeah. like that they they have uh, have uh, put the Knicks on getting this uh, original cut out or alternative cut, I should say. Um, it does seem so bizarre that in the overall history of, you know, as much money and power and success as they've had, why would they not be enthused by, anyway, whatever. We're, the point is, we're going to have a, an in-person Midnight Mass event sometime in the future uh, with Ari and his secret print of the film. So m- more on that to come in a future episode. Yes, but I think that this was such a great, as you said, such a great journey across uh, both uh, the love of this film, but also a celebration of the fandom that rose up out of this film. And uh, just the idea that a single city embraced this movie, and in a lot of ways kept the flame burning. Of course, you and I are not from Winnipeg and found this movie in our own way and loved it, but I think we're the kind of people who are predisposed to love a movie like this. So I I more so just love that this phenomenon exists. And, uh, you know, it's it's singular. I don't think we're going to see something like it again. But I think that thankfully, because of the internet, uh, there are new ways for fandoms and, and movies to be embraced. And I just hope... The, the, the cults of the future are taking note. This is how it's done. Absolutely. And whether you are from Winnipeg and a fan of this movie or you're from, uh, you know, Sydney, Australia, I don't know, and you're a fan of this movie, uh, the fact of the matter is we get these films. We understand these films. And maybe you're a listener who hasn't yet experienced The Phantom of the, of the Paradise and you're going to go out and discover it now. Regardless... You're subscribing to this podcast. We know that because you just finished listening to an epic episode and and we've converted you. And all of you listeners who can hear the sound of my voice are now all the children of the popcorn.
Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.